Hi, and welcome to this mini-series of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. My name is Anna Gutgaard, and with me today are Edid Beno and Amit Varyao. In our third act, I Paid My Dues, Amit will talk about how paying money would constitute the body politic of the ancient Jewish people and the Jerusalem Temple year after year. A group of people who had much to say about the public and the individuals who made it up are the rabbis. This is a name for Jewish intellectuals who were active in the Levant and Mesopotamia in the first century CE. They left behind an impressive literary heritage, most notably the Mishnah and the Talmud, which formed the basis for later stages of Jewish culture. However, in their time, it is unclear whether they were the leaders of the Jewish communities in which they resided or whether they were a marginalized group whose works and thought gained traction only later, as previously Hellenized Jews looked for their own bishops and priests and found them in the rabbis. The world described in the works of the rabbis may or may not have been real. Notably for our discussion, the rabbis described the functions and ceremonies held at the temple in Jerusalem. This institution had been in ruins since the year 70, and even when it existed and functioned, it was not controlled by the rabbis or even by the group the rabbis identified as their spiritual and intellectual predecessors, known as Pharisees. The way in which the rabbis describe the finances of the Jerusalem temple, historical or not, gives us a glimpse into how they thought about the making of a political community and how they understood the Jewish people, whatever that was, to be constituted as a political entity capable of receiving the blessings and atonement of the Jerusalem temple. Temple might make you think about ceremony and officiants and pomp, and it was about all that. But burning animals and cleaning floors and providing for pilgrims is a costly undertaking, and the temple was a massive consumer of money as well as agricultural products. Administering this money and regulating its flow required bureaucrats and offices and, of course, politics. The basic document of the rabbinic movement is called the Mishnah. Slightly less than 200,000 words long, it is made of tractates, each dedicated to a different topic. One of these tractates is called Shekalim, which is the plural of Shekel, the name of a coin worth four Roman denarii. It discusses the financial administration of the Jerusalem temple. It is worth reiterating, this is not a historical document from the temple. It is a document imagining the inner functioning of a long-defunct institution, and perhaps planning for the future. As an imaginary document, it is not necessarily useful for material history, although there is some evidence that it might be. But it is quite useful for understanding the political and religious imagination of the rabbis. The Jerusalem temple was sustained, among other things, by a remarkable phenomenon. Every year, Jews from the entire world, from both the Roman and Persian empires, would collect cash and have it delivered to Jerusalem. This phenomenon is historical. It is known from many sources contemporaneous with the temple. It is mentioned by the historian Josephus and by the philosopher Philo, who lived in Alexandria. It is reflected in the Gospels. After the destruction of the temple, the Roman emperor turned this collection into a tax on the Jews, called the Jewish Fisk. The Mishnah does not mention the Roman tax, or the fact that the temple was gone. Instead, it presents the collection to the temple as a commandment incumbent yearly on all Jews, 
describing the collection of the funds and the way in which they were used in the temple. In the Mishnah, this description is a narrative, working its way chronologically from the first day of the month Adar, roughly corresponds with February, in which the contribution was announced, until the 25th day of the same month, in which people who failed to pay were subject to a forced seizure of their assets to cover the cost of the payment. The Mishnah also describes a public ceremony in which someone would enter the treasury containing all the coins collected three times a year. The person would wear special anti-theft garb and lift a measure of coins from the treasury. The lifting of coins is described in a way reminiscent more of a sacrifice or a ritual than of an accounting exercise. Only the lifted coins could be used to buy sacrifices, meaning that the core functions of the temple, the daily burning of two sheep on the altar and two more of the Sabbath, required both the tax and the lifting ceremony to continue. In the imaginary world of the Mishnah, suspending disbelief for a moment about whether or not this was the way the temple actually functioned, what was this procedure meant to do? What did the ritual action accomplish? So let's start with a simpler part. Lifting a measure of coins from the treasury is similar to the way in which, say, a meal sacrifice is offered. A fistful of flour is taken from a fixture and burned on the altar, and this makes the rest of the flour holy and sacrificial. It is then baked or fried and consumed by priests. Similarly, the lifting of the coins makes the treasury sacred. The coins are not burned. Instead, they are used to buy animals, flour, oil, and wine. All of these are, in fact, burned. The lifted coins are random representatives of all of the coins in the treasury, and they make all of the contributed coins holy. The ritual act mirrors a political and social act. Most Jews were not residents of Jerusalem, even in the ancient world. They were not a political community in the conventional sense, they had no shared institutions, no territory or language. They shared beliefs and rituals and, of course, an interest in the Jerusalem temple. In the rabbinic imagination, if all Jews had lived in the same city, then they would have been joint owners of the city and its public institutions, such as its bath, its synagogue, and its town square. If they had been Romans, they would have imagined as much, and this imagination would have served them in a legal sense. They would have donated money to the city and paid levies to it. The Mishnah describes this model of city in a different tractate, but it only works if there is a real city, one with a public domain, streets, and squares. But the Jews of the various cities of the Roman and Persian empires shared no property with one another. They were not joint owners of anything. And so there needed to be a mechanism to connect all Jews to the Jerusalem temple so that it could work for them. To provide this mechanism, there could have been a turn to the metaphysical. Jerusalem belongs to all those who love it in their hearts, or the temple protects all of the Jewish people or all of humanity. There could have also been a turn to political imagination in the Roman way, to say all Jews are quasi-Jerusalemites. It is as if they own land in Jerusalem. The sacrifices work for them as if they had been joint owners of the temple, although in fact they are not. Instead, the Mishnah offers a different model. The temple works for all who pay for it. 
This payment is annual and membership must be renewed each payment period. And this is why the Jews who fail to pay are compelled to pay by force, or at least imagined to be. That this is the purpose of the payment is reflected in the tax rate, which is entirely equal for all payers. The Palestinian Talmud, a 4th century compendium of comments and expansions on the Mishnah, explains that this is done so that the atonement of all will be equal. So in order for the temple to work equally for all Jews, they need to be obligated towards it equally. The yearly payment from each individual constitutes a recurring ad hoc political community around the temple. And this is the community for whom the temple works. This is the public who pays for the public offerings. The daily sacrifices of the temple and all of its rituals are enacted for the paying customers. Private property in this imagining creates a body politic. Philo of Alexandria reports that the Jerusalem temple had estates which raised revenue for it. This is a very old custom which continues to this day in both Christian and Muslim contexts. But in the rabbinic imagination, the temple has no estates, at least not estates which it can use to fund its core function. For the rabbis, the temple cannot function without yearly cash contributions from all Jews. This cash is the fuel for the fires on the altar, and without it, the fire will go out. This is an exceptional exercise, I think, in political imagination. For the rabbis, the basic political community was the town, a place with shared assets and a shared governing body. The centralized temple in Jerusalem, a historical past, and for the rabbis, a desired future, did not fit within this paradigm. And so they envisioned it as something very close to a corporation in which shares are offered once a year at a fixed price. Everyone must join the firm, and the benefits accrue to all. Money, in this case, buys citizenship. So, Amit, does this work? Do people at home, far away from Jerusalem, far away from the temple, actually feel something different towards Jerusalem because of this tax? Do we know because it's imagined? So the rabbis lived and created texts in the 2nd century and the 3rd centuries of the Common Era. But the Jerusalem Temple existed in the 1st century of the Common Era and before. And there are historical sources contemporaneous with the temple that describe, at least in its last phases of its existence, an actual collection of actual cash that flowed towards the temple. And I think that people actually did think that that's what made them Jewish. And the reason I think that is that when the temple was destroyed by the Romans, they reversed the flow of this tax and sent the same amounts of money to the Roman Empire. And now it was a tax on all the people who thought they were Jews to pay the emperor. And people did. So paying this temple levy voluntarily, and later paying the Jewish tax involuntarily, mirrored each other, I think, not only from the point of view of the institutions, but also from the point of view of the individual. 
I was wondering, what happens when Christianity appears uh, on the scene uh, with their ideas of, of a universal community that transcends uh, political boundaries? How is this conversation, this Jewish conversation about the temple being or the imagined temple being the essence of what constitutes the Jewish community is affected by uh, these new, new ideas, Christian ideas of what community is? There is something very, to borrow a phrase, something very carnal about the idea that in order for the temple to work for you, the individual, you need to have paid money to it. And there's a degree of abstraction that I think that element of Christian political imagination achieved that um, the Jews were not happy with. And there's a curious feature of synagogue inscriptions from late antiquity that call God's blessing on the individual village community and nothing greater. Peace to us here in this holy place um, that Christians have just a broader horizon. They're an ecumenical church. Um, they're a Catholic church. Jewish communities are much more local and smaller. The political imagination is different. Um, and I think this is why the Jerusalem Temple as a central institution required this mechanism that the church really didn't need. Thank you. This was the Martin Buber Society of Fellows podcast miniseries. Our editor is Omri Bendo. The sound editor is Amir Klein. In Balkol coordinated the special for the society. Rashen Morris is the director of the society. Amit Gvaryao and Edith Benor co-hosted with me today. My name is Anna Gutgartz, and thank you for listening.